Hello, uh, my name is Marco D'Ambrogi, I'm the acting deputy editor of The Lancet Child and Adolescent Health and uh, today I'm here with Professor Chris Bonnell from the London School of Tropical Medicine where he's Professor of Public Health Sociology and uh, we're speaking about his paper uh, Role Theory of Schools and Adolescent Health. Uh, welcome Professor Bonnell and uh, uh, your paper uh, talks about uh, how the school social environment may impact on uh, adolescents' risk-taking behavior and health. Can you give us just a brief background why it is important to talk about this and what prompted you to uh, write this paper and make this study, basically? Yeah, sure. So the way we got interested originally in how the school environment might affect young people's health behaviours and health, you know, things like smoking and stuff like that, was we did a, a cohort study where we followed a large group of uh, young people through several years of school and we looked at the factors that predicted risk of teenage pregnancy, which was the outcome we were interested in. And we found much more than socioeconomic status or anything else, the strongest predict was whether they disliked school when they were in their early teens. And so we did some further research where we did qualitative research in schools, interviewing kids about their experience of education and school and how that affected their behaviours. And it seemed that there was a link. And we then reviewed uh, evidence looking at school-level studies. So we looked at studies that had been done by other people that identified correlations between uh, schools having different approaches to education uh, and, and, the, and the health outcomes of the students in those schools. So what we found was that schools that were more successful in engaging more kids in education had lower rates of smoking and drinking and violence than schools that were less engaging. Um, and we were aware of existing theories and very interesting existing theories in this uh, field, most notably a theory by uh, Wolfgang Markham and Paul Laviard, which is a theory of health-promoting schools, which is a, a good theory and was really useful to us. But we thought it had two limitations, I guess. One was that it didn't really talk about how young people changed as they went through adolescence and what implications that might have. And also, it didn't really talk about mental health. It focused primarily on uh, health-related risk behaviours such as smoking and drinking and things like that and didn't focus on mental health. So we wanted to develop a new theory that took on board the empirical research that we knew about and might be able to explain it, but that also engaged with these other areas that I've just mentioned. Absolutely, that's very interesting. And uh, then in, in the paper you sort of uh, expand a bit on uh, how, uh, what mechanism can the school promote, uh, uh, through which mechanism, sorry, the school may promote uh, health benefits for adolescents. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about those? Yeah, so our theory really is that, that schools need to engage all their students um, in school life in a positive way. And the way that that needs to happen is that all students need to have some sort of a role that they can perform well at school. Not all students can perform well the role of you know academic overachiever because not all kids are going to be like that. But our theory is that um, schools need to provide opportunities for kids to play a diversity of roles so that all the kids feel part of the school community and feel there's a reason for them to engage positively with school. And the roles that are available need to align with the sort of different varieties of knowledge and skills and culture that kids come from and have. Um, 
because if you don't do that, then there's going to be a, a mass of students who feel disaffected with school. And if that happens, students who feel um, disengaged from school don't feel like they've got a positive role to play in the school, feel like they're getting negative feedback from teachers or other students on how well they perform in school. They might try to find other roles, which might be anti-school uh, roles um, with anti-school um, peers. Uh, and those roles, for example, might be ways for them to um, Get, develop a sense of belonging and status amongst their peers if if more pro-educational, pro-school uh, roles are denied them or they don't feel able to perform. So, for example, students might smoke or they might drink or they might engage in violence or early sexual activity as sort of markers of belonging in these other sort of antisocial anti risk groups in schools. And those behaviours... They, they play a role in those kids' life and they give them a certain status and belonging and define their passage to adulthood, but obviously in a way that often can predispose them to health risks, either immediately, for example, via violence, or in the longer term because they start smoking when they're younger. And those those, like, those behaviours can be sort of the glue that hold together um, anti-school peer groups. So the school's job really is to try and minimise the likelihood that those groups will form and that many students will join those kinds of groups. So it's all about you know a diversity of roles, um, a focus on equity and making sure all kids feel like they're belonging, and and also little things like you know not concentrating the most at-risk kids together in in, in um, bottom-set streams, which, where they're much more likely to develop into antisocial uh, peer groups with each other. Absolutely, and you outlined that very well in your paper. And, uh, of course, we're talking about adolescents, and what uh, is uh, indicated also in the paper is that, of course, adolescence is a period where uh, the response from peers and from teachers is particularly important because it is a period of transition towards adulthood. Uh, so can you tell us a bit more why peers and teachers' response is particularly influential during this period and how th that sort of impacts on the risk-taking behaviour? Yeah, so our paper is unusual in that it's the product of a conversation between sociologists like me and um, a cognitive neuroscientist, um, Sarah Jane Blakemore. And, you know, unlike some sociologists, we believe adolescence is a real thing. It, it's, a, it's a real transition where um, individuals' brains change and the way they think changes. Um, not in a deterministic way, not in a way that biology explains behavior directly. Uh, you know, we, we're much more complex creatures than that. But we think there are, there, are, there are things going on in adolescence to adolescent brains that will change the way schools function. So, for example, in the course of adolescence, there's strong evidence that individuals become better at mentalizing, which means taking the perspective of others and seeing the world through others' eyes. Um, and with that, the, there is an increasing concern with particularly how one's peers evaluate oneself and a sort of sensitivity to peer evaluations of you. And there's also an, uh, a, 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 much more than amongst adults a very strong peer influence on behaviours. So there's some very nice little experiments where people did driving simulation games. And whereas adults were safer drivers when they were accompanied by their peers, adolescents were more risky drivers. So there's these things going on, and these things 
don't directly and immediately impact behavior. But our argument is that they, they set up uh, a situation where the, the risk of young people feeling that their performances in schools don't achieve the status and belonging that they wanted them to. There's a risk that um, because adolescents become increasingly sensitive to peer evaluation and also to teacher evaluation as well, that um, any sense of exclusion can get magnified. So, th so their performances, if you like, become more precarious and there's more chance that things will go wrong. And when things go wrong, it means that there's more likely that students will feel like they can't achieve what they want to achieve by performing pro-school roles, and they get drawn into performing anti-school roles as an alternative way to develop um, a sense of uh, a positive uh, evaluation from their peers and a sense of belonging and status within peer groups. So we think it's, it's just a sort of time of heightened precariousness. And that's why the secondary school environment is so important for um, health-related risk behaviours and mental health. And uh, uh, w one aspect of the paper that uh, is particularly original, or and uh, I believe that our readers are not particularly familiar with that, is that uh, your theoretical analysis is based on uh, uh, Erwin Goffman's dramaturgical approach to sociology. And uh, in the paper, you use uh, very often the concepts of performance and audience in the school environment. Can you just tell us a bit more about that for those who are not familiar with the theory? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So Irving Goffman is quite an old uh, sociologist. You know, he, he was writing in the, in the 50s and 60s in the US. Um, and interestingly, he, um, he's quite unusual among sociologists and he writes quite well. And uh, quite a lot of people who aren't sociologists read him. So I remember finding out once that Alan Bennett thought he was a great writer and enjoyed his books. And so what Irving Goffman does, he, he observes life in different kinds of institutions, or you know, in the past he did. And he 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 um, presents, he understands social interactions as if they were sort of theatrical performances. His school of sociology is called dramaturgical analysis, which, you know, is using the metaphor of theatre to understand life. So essentially what he's saying is that a performer, uh, any individual in an institution, is a performer, and they're aiming to convey a positive impression and build a sense of belonging with their audience. But the problem is that performances can be precarious and, you know, everyday social interactions are ripe with the potential for rejection or misinterpretation and failed performance. And the risk is that repeated failed performances in social life can bring with them stigma and exclusion from the group. And if that happens, people will withdraw from the sorts of performances that they feel they can't bring off successfully and they'll reinvest in the sorts of performances that they think will convey the impression they intend to. So we thought this, you know, this is sort of arcane sociology, if you like, but we thought this is, is quite a good metaphor for what life is like in schools. Young people in schools are performing in front of an audience, sometimes in, 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 in something that closely resembles a theatrical performance. A classroom is quite like a theatrical performance. You know, you have an audience who can go either way. They can be supportive and encouraging or they can be quite hostile, as can the teacher. So uh, this precariousness and this potential for stigma seem to us very like what school life is like. So we thought that was a useful theoretical framework for thinking about social interactions in schools and the consequences of those social interactions.
I absolutely agree that it is a metaphor that is very effective to convey uh, your theory. And in the paper, you also talk about uh, the fact that students may possess different types of what is defined as capital. Yeah. Uh, can you tell us a bit more what you mean with that? Yeah, so we're interested in how different kinds of students will have different kinds of experiences and some pupils will be more at risk than others. And we think a nice way of understanding this, again from the world of sociology, is understanding the concept of capital. So capital, you know, its everyday usage usually refers to economic capital, which means having the money to be able to do things, essentially. And uh, uh, sociologists, different sociologists at different points in history have talked about other forms of capital and the two that we were most interested in were cultural capital and social capital so cultural capital is just a big word for different people having different knowledge and skills or styles of communication and social capital really just refers to uh, relationships and the idea is that cultural and social capital as well as economic capital can help you do the things you want to do um, and we thought, again, this applies to understanding social interactions in school. So a pupil is engaging in a performance in a certain social interaction in a, in a classroom and different pupils will have different ability to pull off that performance. So a student who's got middle class cultural capital, who speaks with the same accent and uses the same sort of vocabulary as their teachers, is more likely to get a favourable um, set of feedback from the teacher and uh, develop a, a good relationship with the teacher. Similarly, a student who's got strong social capital with other um, academically orientated students or with the teacher is more likely to you know, continue to feel focused on education and to better perform in the classroom and, uh, and elsewhere. Uh, and so we thought this was just a useful way of understanding how different kinds of kids will have different experiences of school and will experience different levels of precariousness about the performances that they enact in school without being too dogmatically uh, focused on, say, one thing, such as socioeconomic status. You know, these are things that might vary not just with the social class of students, but also with their gender or ethnicity. Not in a necessarily very predictable way, but something that is going to be important in different contexts. Absolutely. So, uh, well, what what emerges from the pa this paper is that schools should embrace diversity and also promote uh, the fulfillment of different roles. And uh, just to conclude, uh, at the end of the paper, you make some recommendations uh, based on your school theory. C can you just summarize them here? Yeah. So we we think that, as I said earlier, the schools just need to offer a set of diverse activities. Uh, they can't just be factories for educational attainment because that will only ever appeal to a certain subsection of students. Schools obviously have to focus on educational attainment. And when I'm thinking about my own kids' education, of course I want them to go to schools that focus on academic excellence. But um, schools have to offer other things as well. And, and obviously most do uh, to varying extents. There needs to be a focus on different what you might call pastoral roles about giving kids a role in the social life of the community different extracurricular activities and just informal activities as well where teachers and students get on in different ways so that's one recommendation um, 
this isn't meant to be suggesting things that schools themselves have never thought of. It's meant to crystallise what's already happening in many schools. Um, and we also argue that schools need to make the more pro-school role, roles within within their institutions more attractive to adolescents by gradually offering more and more autonomy. Because the other thing, obviously, with with adolescents is they yearn for more and more autonomy as they as they progress through adolescence. And uh, schools need to adapt their learning styles and the way they function as institutions to take account of that. You don't expect uh, a 13-year-old to have complete and total autonomy about the way they learn or behave in class. But it is reasonable, I think, to um, offer a graduated sense of autonomy in different areas of school life as, as children gradually grow older. And there's strong evidence from cognitive neuroscience that uh, that is what happens, that they gradually yearn for more and more autonomy in different areas of life. So it's a gradual transition to adulthood. We also recommend that um, schools, as, uh, again, as they often already do, um, focus on student performance, not just in terms of absolute attainment, but also in terms of the student's effort and trajectory and offer feedback in as constructive as way as possible. Uh, again, it's the good schools obviously already do do this, but we think that's very important for keeping students engaged in education and pro-school life and make them less likely to veer off into anti-school peer groups uh, where there's likely to be a high rate of health risk behaviours. Uh, as I've already mentioned, we think it's really important that schools are equitable because the kids who are most at risk of engaging in anti-school peer groups and in health-harming behaviours are going to be the kids from lower socioeconomic statuses or groups that are minorities within the school. So schools need to make sure that their their practices reach out to those kinds of kids. But it helps if the school is diverse. If the school has a staffing that reflects the socio-demographic profile of the, the kids who are attending the school, it's more likely that equity is going to be achieved. And lastly, we just recommend that schools minimise the extent to which they artificially cluster uh, disadvantaged kids together. Because if you, dis if you cluster um, disadvantaged kids together, for example, in low attainment sets, you're, there, there's this thing called uh, positive deviancy training where um, kids are, are then more likely to pass on uh, and influence each other in picking up um, anti-social anti behaviours such as violence or early smoking or things like that. So all of these things we recommend as concrete steps that schools can take, but we're really trying to be humble and not suggest that what we, you know, we're not proposing something world-changing. We're trying to crystallise what's already happening in the best schools. Absolutely, and I think all these points are a good point of reflection for anyone working in school, and then, of course, they will be applied depending on the setting and the capacities and, uh, well, many other factors. I thank Professor Bonell for being with us, and I encourage anyone listening to this podcast to read the paper, which is extremely interesting. Thank you very much. Thanks very much.